A U.S. Air Boeing 737-300 is on its descent into LAX when disaster strikes. What in the ATC system caused this tragedy? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Erin! Again! Again. <laughs> I bet you can wonder why you're here. I can wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I, or I, I guess the, the proper term would be, I bet you can guess why you're here. Yeah. But... I like how you give him an intro, but Brendan doesn't ever get one. Like, <laughs> we kind of wait now to see what he does every time, because well, half the time it's like, you can just introduce yourself. You're here all the frickin' time. Yeah. He would have been here today if you weren't here. Sounds he's like still Brendan. bored, which is weird, because he's, like, back at school. Probably, I know. <laughs> you know? And yeah, aren't, aren't you back yet? Or So, yeah. So, update to everybody. Uh, I am working from home, officially, which is great with my brother and stuff. I started last week. was my first week back at work. So, basically, all I do is I sit in my room and plan and do lessons and stuff. <laughs> Because everything would have been online anyway. But Woo. And also, sorry for those patrons that had to listen to my post episode last week. Uh, that was entirely me like talking about my job. That was probably really boring. <laughs> Speaking of patrons, we have several new ones this week. Yeah. And we appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. That. Thanks. I know for sure, Brian, thank you. Because mm-hmm. I know you joined uh, since we last recorded. I think we mentioned the other two. Yeah. Last our last episode that wasn't last week because we recorded a, a couple days ago. Yeah. But thanks to everybody if uh for being a patron and supporting us. Yeah, thanks you. Thank you Mike. Again. Again. Thanks Mike <laughs> for for recommending this episode. You're cool. So, Nick, what are we covering today? So today, that's a complicated question. We are it is a complicated question. <laughs> I like complicated questions. Yes. <laughs> Today, we are covering an LAX disaster. Ooh. We'll just leave it at that to start. Dun, dun, dun. So this took place on February the 1st of 1991. Good year. Happy birthday, Dad. Wait, that's his actual birthday? Well, not 1991, but... February 1st. February 1st. Oh, gotcha. It's my dad's and my aunt's birthday. They are a year apart. They are Irish twins. Moving on. Great. Okay. That's fun. Cool. So we'll be talking about U.S. Air Flight 1493. Yes, I know we've talked about U.S. Air quite a few times recently. We know. (laughs) (laughs) It's Mike's fault. But to be fair, they have some interesting accidents. I hate to say it. This was a 737-300 with the tail number November 388 Uniform Sierra. The captain for the flight was Colin Shaw. He was 48 years old. He had 16,300 hours total, which is quite a bit. Of which over 4,300 hours were on the 737. That's a lot. That is. The first officer was David Kelly. He was 32 years old. He had 4,300 hours total, of which 982 hours were on the 737. This 737 was scheduled that day to fly from Syracuse in New York to San Francisco via Washington Reagan Airport, Columbus, Ohio, and LAX in Los Angeles. The airplane had a scheduled crew change at the Washington Reagan Airport during the middle of the day. The leg we will be talking about, however was from Columbus to LAX. There were 89 passengers and 6 crew for this trip. The en route time was scheduled for 4 hours and 43 minutes and at a planned altitude of 35,000 feet, or flight level 350 for our pilot friends. 
They departed Columbus at 1.17 p.m. with the, per the first officer as the pilot flying for this flight. The flight was mostly uneventful. Upon arrival into the LAX area, the flight was cleared for the Civet, or Charlie India Victor Echo Tango, profile descent to LAX. So this is, a, this is what's known as a standard terminal approach. So this was a... Basically, it is the... The way airplanes arrive into an, a terminal area or an airport's area, a major area, they have what are known as stars, standard terminal approaches. They contacted the Tracon. Do you want to explain? Do you want to explain Tracon? I've explained it before, but do you have a better explanation for a Tracon? <laughs> uh, Tracon is it's it's more designed, especially for arrivals and departures. You know, it's a it's a little bit more precise than your standard VOR approaches. Sure. They contacted the Tracon arrival radar one controller and were instructed to intercept the runway 24 right ILS localizer, instrument landing system localizer, and to maintain 10,000 feet. That was at 5.57 p.m. and 28 seconds. 5.59 p.m., the arrival one controller asked, US Air, uh, USA 1493, do you have the airport in sight? Four seconds later, the captain advised affirmative and also confirmed to the first officer that they had that he had visual contact with the airport at that time the airplane was still 25 nautical miles away from the airport so he has good eyesight yeah the atc then advised quote cleared visual approach runway 24 left usa 1493 crossed dine at or above 8000 and quote and the captain acknowledged so that means uh one of their waypoints along the approach was the waypoint dine d-e-n-a-y and they were to cross that at or above 8000 feet at 5.59 p.m. and 57 seconds, the crew confirmed with the air traffic controller that they were cleared for the visual approach at 2.24 left, which was confirmed. So, in other words, originally they were given the ILS for 2.4 right, but then the ATC instructed them to take 2.4 left, so they wanted to confirm that. Good old sidestep. <laughs> yep. At 6.03 p.m. and 5 seconds, the air traffic controller advised the flight to contact the LAX tower as they crossed Roman, another waypoint along their approach. This was all occurring during the hours of night, because it is February. Yeah, it gets dark at like 4 o'clock. Yeah. So the visual <laughs> that they had on the airport at that point were the lights of the airport. The flight lined up for the visual for the for 24 left, but used the glide slope for 24 right from the ILS, because 24 left did not have an operating ILS or VASI system. The VASI is also just a uh, basically a reference for your approach glide slope. And it had neither the ILS nor the VASI operating for 24 left. Uh, this is at LAX, correct? Correct. Yes. That is actually kind of strange. Isn't that it? You wouldn't think that at least they would have a VASI. I know. It really, yes. But these days, they do, I'm uh, sure. Oh, okay, explain to me what that is, a VASI. What is that? Can you explain it? It is an approach light. So, oh, okay. Um, VASIs and poppies are basically almost the I same I know what thing. poppies are. Yeah, yeah, they're basically the same thing, except one has four and one has two lights, but they do the same. Principle. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So the, so the VASI is a two light. Yeah. System. And oh, it's okay. got one red, one white. Yeah. Oh, so if it's two red, not good? Two red, you're dead. Yeah. Red and you're dead. So it's kind of the same as the poppy lights, right? So yeah, it's exactly you, you the wanna, same. You want to have a red half and, and a white? Yeah. yeah. You want to have half and half. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. The airplane was then configured for landing 12 nautical miles from the runway. At 6.04 and 33 seconds, the flight contacted the tower controller, or LC2 controller. We'll refer to them. Local controller. Local too. controller, too. We will refer to them as LC2. But the thing is, there was multiple local controllers, and we're talking specifically about the LC2 controller. They stated that they were inside Roman, the waypoint they were given, mm -hmm. which was heard by the air traffic controller, but was not acknowledged by the air traffic controller. That's weird. 
At 6.05 p.m. and 29 seconds, the captain contacted the air traffic controller to say, U.S. Air 1493 for the left side, 24 left, basically asking for the landing clearance as they were getting closer. They were nearing their short final at that point. The LC-2, again, did not acknowledge this call and made several other calls to other flights. Finally, at 6.05 p.m. and 53 seconds, the air traffic controller gave the flight clearance to land on 24 left as they were on a very short final at that point. They acknowledged the clearance, and this was the last time that they were heard from. That's weird, right? Okay. That the controller didn't contact them for a while? I'll, like, I'll get to that in a minute. Yes. Great. great. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad yeah. that you're saying that because I'm in, I'm like, what is happening? It's not as entirely weird as you think. Yeah. Well, I know Basically. that controllers are like in charge of multiple flights and, well, and when all you're, that stuff. When but... you start talking about Bravo airspace, those air traffic controllers are so busy that generally it's a they call you thing. Yeah. You shouldn't call them. In the air disasters episode, they specifically said that it was normal at LAX that you wouldn't get a landing clearance until you were on short final. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it wasn't weird that they didn't hear from them immediately. Yeah. Okay. Not, not weird. Cool. Glad we cleared that up. The flight touched down about at about 130 knots and about 1,500 feet past the threshold. The engine thrust reversers then activated and the speed brakes deployed. Suddenly, the captain shouted, What the hell? The airplane sh then shook violently and fell onto the belly. Sparks flew and flames were seen as the airplane skidded off the left side of the runway into a small building. So things happen fast. Yeah. Yes. Was it weird for them to touch down 1,500 feet down the runway? No. Okay. Nope, that's about right. I, I wouldn't think so, because it's a jetliner, right? So. Yep. Now that, that's about right. Okay. So now that you know that, let's start all over again. <laughs> but in another way. So now we're going to talk about SkyWest Flight 5569. This was a Fairchild Metroliner, a very small twin prop airplane. I, I love, uh, you are I, I love well this. aware of what those are. <laughs> if you operate anywhere within Centennial Airport, you know what that is. Yeah. Uh, I also love this story, so I'm just, just going <laughs> to... You know this one then yes, very well? Yes, okay, yes. good. Dang it! <laughs> hey, okay. but I don't know it, so... Yeah, that's the, this is good. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> it's fine, because I don't know what the heck's going on. So. Yeah. Did you want to explain anything before I jump into this one? Oh, is no, it... no, no. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This Fairchild Metroliner had the tail number November 683 Alpha Victor. This is a twin turboprop, small 19-seater airplane with two crew. The captain for this flight was Andrew Lucas. He was 32 years old. He had 8,800 hours total, so pretty actually experienced for being a Metroliner captain. He had 2,101 hours on the Metroliner. The first officer was Frank Prentice. He was 45 years old, so a little bit older. He had 8,000 hours total, also pretty experienced for a Metroliner pilot, and 1,363 hours on the Metroliner. This flight was scheduled to fly from Palm Springs to quite a few different Southern California destinations, actually, through the day. There was a flight crew change to the accident crew, which was at Inyokern, California. They were to fly the plane from Inyokern to LAX to Fresno, back to LAX, and then on to Palmdale. Our story begins on their leg from LAX to Palmdale. At 5.58 p.m., sound familiar? Flight 5569 began to taxi for takeoff. At 6.01 p.m. and 49 seconds, the ground controller advised the flight to hold short of taxiway Tango for right now. At 6.02 p.m. and 43 seconds, the ground controller instructed the flight then, when able, turn right on Tango, and then at 45, transition to uniform, taxi to runway 24 left, and the flight acknowledged. So they're at LAX. They are at LAX. And they were just given instructions to taxi... To 2-4 left? 2-4 left, via Tango, on then taxiway 45, transition to uniform, 
taxi to runway 24 left. So Probably not good. I can see how this is not going to end well. I'm sure you can. <laughs> a lot of foreshadowing has already just happened. At 6.03 p.m. and 38 seconds, the flight contacted the tower controller saying, Sky West, uh, 569 at 45. It's a taxi with 45. We'd like to go from here if we can. So instead of taking uniform down to the end of the runway, they wanted to just leave from taxiway 45 on 24 left. It's a little bit further midfield, so a little bit further down the runway. Small airplane doesn't need a whole lot of runway. Nope. At 6.03 p.m. and 40 seconds, the air traffic controller stated, Skywest 569, taxi up to and hold short of 24 left. And the crew acknowledged this. At 6.04 p.m. and 44 seconds, the LC2 controller instructed the flight to taxi into position and hold on runway 24 left. Traffic will cross downfield, she told them. The crew acknowledged and taxied onto the runway and positioned on the center line and then held position. So in other words, they couldn't take off yet, but they could be on the runway on the center line. This was the last transmission from that crew. So now we're going to switch perspectives a little bit. We're going to switch to our LC2 controller for the rest of their story. At the time, the SkyWest flight took the runway and that the U.S. Air flight was on the approach. There was a Wings West flight, Wings West 5006, another Metroliner, which was at a midfield taxiway, taxiway 52, on the right side of runway 24 left, waiting to cross. This was the traffic that the LC2 controller had just advised SkyWest when they position and hold to wait, there's going to be traffic crossing downfield. The LC2 controller tried to contact the Wings West flight several times to attempt to give them clearance to cross the runway. Wings West 5006 had inadvertently switched off of the LC2's frequency, so they did not hear the four calls made by the LC2 to cross. This caused a delay to all of the traffic for 24 left. They did finally switch back over. They apologized and finally took the clearance to cross the runway. The LCU controller then proceeded to make transmissions to other flights, including Wings <laughs> West 5072 and Southwest 725. The Wings West 5072 contacted the LC2 to state that they were ready for takeoff. At that moment, the LC2 controller had realized that she had encountered some confusion because she did not have a flight strip for that flight. Do you want to explain what a flight strip is? Yeah, flight strips, they have basic information on planes. Typically used for organization purposes. So they'll say, uh, tail number of plane, what kind of plane, uh, kind of crew, what the flight is, the route, all the fun jazz. Yep. And those little flight strips are usually handed between air traffic controllers as they're passed off to their frequency, and that carries the information, tells them who they're controlling. Yeah, and they're actually electronic now. Yeah, a lot yeah. of them are electronic. Aren't now. they like, didn't they used to be like the little ones that yeah. you slide in and slide out? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And in this case, they were. And she realized that she didn't have a flight strip for this flight. So she was a little confused when this airplane contacted her. She got with her supervisor and, re and requested this flight strip for this flight, which was located at the clearance delivery position. And then she instructed the flight to hold short of the runway. And which flight is this? I'm sorry. This is the Wings West 5072. So the one that is holding it from on the left side? Oh, nope. This is another one. Oh. So there's I know, like there's, three different planes. There are so many planes right now. You're starting to <laughs> and, get a picture of why. And three of them are metro liners. And two of them are the same airline. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay, yeah, I'm confused. So I can okay. see how she got confused. So SkyWest is sitting at the end, middle of the runway ready to holding, take off. Yeah, holding short. Wings West 5006 is crossing the runway. Further down. Okay. And then Wings West 5072 is going towards the end of the runway and is wanting to take off. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. So now you're, getting, you're starting to get a picture of what the air traffic controller was dealing with. Yeah. The U.S. air flight then touched down on 24 left, and seconds later, the LC-2 saw flames as the airplane skidded off the runway to the left side and impacted a building. 
Search and rescue crews quickly dispatched to the scene, but one of the firefighters made a startling discovery shortly after that there were pieces of another airplane in the wreckage. They immediately contacted the air traffic controllers, who began searching for any missing flights, and they quickly discovered that SkyWest 5569 was not found. Well, they found it. Well, yes. So here's my question that technically wasn't answered that I was thinking about while we were talking about the U.S. air flight. Mm -hmm. So what I understand by runways that share a number but are left and right, right? Mm -hmm. Usually one of them is for departures and one of them is for arrivals. Not all the time. But I was wondering, like, why did they switch them to 2-4 left instead of keeping them on 2-4 right? Right. So, all of that aside, they were using both runways. And however, at the time, uh, they were allowed to use either runway for takeoffs or landings. Oh, I feel like that's super dangerous. And basically, in order to sequence them in for traffic, they had planned for the U.S. air flight to fly on 24 left. Right. So, they were allowed to do that, and they were also allowed to have takeoff traffic on that flight. Yikes. We'll get into more of that later. Okay. Cool. <laughs> but that's that was my my brain was like, wait a minute. Usually it's one is departures, one is um, arrivals. It, it also but... depends on uh, like how busy an airport is. Well, yeah, yeah because... but LAX is a pretty big airport, right? So you would think that they would be pretty organized in one would be coming in and people would go out on different, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, t- I totally understand. But like, We'll talk more about it, too. Yeah. 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 I figured it, it's probably something that, considering what Nick just said, that I'm like, oh, okay. It's a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, at a small um, airport like Centennial, like, that's probably not a big deal, right? Cause not at all. it's not as busy. Well, it's Depends. busy. Depends. But, yeah. but usually, like, small airplanes landing and taking off on the same runway kind of not that big of a deal but something as big as an international airport like lax i would think that it, it would be a little more organized but apparently it was not the bigger problem is that you have a lot of airplanes moving very very fast yep. yes so in this crash 34 perished two crew and 10 passengers on the metro liner which was all on board the two crew and 20 passengers on the 737 that perished and then there were two crew and 11 passengers that were seriously injured on the 737, and two crew and 15 passengers that were minorly injured on the 737, and 37 passengers on the 737 that weren't injured at all. Both aircraft were completely destroyed by the impact forces and the post-crash fire of the collision. The estimated value of the Metroliner at the time was $1.6 million, and the estimated value of the 737 at the time was an estimated $20 million. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, that's actually cheaper <laughs> yeah. than what you think. Yeah, I know. To me, that's is that calculated yeah. for inflation? Probably not. Okay. I mean, at the time, maybe, but now, no. Okay. There was minor damage to an inactive and an, and unoccupied airport satellite fire station where they had impacted. That's kind of ironic. And lucky. Yeah. <laughs> both. The Metroliner was crushed beneath the front and left side of the 737, and both aircraft traveled a further 600 feet down the runway before veering left and impacting the vacant fire station. The 737 was nearly entirely intact when it came to rest, but the Metroliner had broken apart upon impact with the 737. The tail section was located nearly 240 feet away from the main wreckage, and that's all I got. Awesome. Okay, so this investigation was performed by the NTSB, as expected. Surprise! Just kidding. But they actually had to wait a while before they could get to the wreckage, because the 737 was still full of fuel! So they had to take all day on Saturday to defuel it. Before they could get to the wreckage. Awesome. 
Probably better safe than sorry, right? Yeah. yeah. After investigators were finally able to get through the wreckage, they recovered the black boxes from U.S. Air 1493, but were unable to recover a CVR from SkyWest 5569 because it was not required to have one. Well, because it's a smaller airplane, right? So yep. Did They probably did have an FDR, but not a CVR. I don't know if they did because it doesn't come up. Well, so. it wouldn't have been pertinent in this accident, but... So, any communication in the cockpit of the Metroliner was only known from recordings from ATC. Upon reviewing those recordings, investigators found the true culprit for this incident. SkyWest 5569 was transferred to the North Complex Ground Controller from the South Complex Ground Controller after the flight plan clearance was given. This is where things deviate from a normal airport. LAX air traffic control procedures don't specify how flight progress strips were used at this point. The strips were printed from the system with the flight number, airplane type, blah, blah, blah. This means that planes were coordinating intersection departures with the local controller instead of the ground controller. The ground controller didn't coordinate any of these things with the local controller and were basically hands-off. Basically, they were just handing the strips to the local controllers, and that is how this particular strip ended up on the local controller 2's desk, which, as you might have caught, she is a woman. Yes. Her name is was Robin Washer, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about her more. By taking the ground controller out of this entire procedure, they did it to lighten the load on the ground controllers, and this meant that the strips weren't being marked by the ground controllers, so a lot of information that normally they would have garnered from flight crews just weren't on the strips. Like, where they intended to go, like, things like that. So that meant that the workload on the local controller was increased because they had to figure out crew's intentions and remember them while monitoring the ground, and this made them very prone to forgetting such details. SkyWest 5569 radioed into the local controller 2, asking to depart from the intersection between Taxiway 45 and Runway 24 left. The local controller, when interviewed, said she didn't remember hearing the at 45 portion of the transmission, but the recording indicated that she was briefly aware of their position at intersection 45. She cleared them to taxi into position and hold on runway 24 left, traffic will cross downfield. She then told Southwest Airlines 725 to taxi up to and hold short of 24 left, you'll follow the Metro Liner, which was in reference to SkyWest. The traffic that she was trying to get across the runway, 24 left, was wing west 5... Uh, I guess we already talked about all this. Well, yeah, but it's always... It's okay. So here's here's my question, though, knowing all this, right? So she says that she didn't know where the Metroliner was, right? The, the Sky West? Or that so, she didn't remember having them be yeah. on 45, right? Yeah. So even with that, right... She told them to hold short, which means they're not supposed to take off yet. Nope. So I'm confused as how they were even on the runway. Because she told them to position and hold. Yeah. Which is to position on the center line of the runway and hold. And oh, hold. no. But amidst the confusion of trying to get a hold of Wings West 5006, plus trying to find the strip for Wings West 5072, she got completely confused, and when she looked out the window and saw a metro liner holding short of the runway, as in not on the runway, which was actually Wings West 5072, she thought that was SkyWest 5569 and completely forgot that SkyWest was on the runway. Oh, no. And then they had someone coming in. Oh, no. See, this is why you shouldn't have (laughs) departure traffic and arrival traffic 
on the yeah. same runway. So it was actually while she and her supervisor were trying to find and sort out the strip situation with Wings West 5072, that's when the collision happened. <gasps> so she wasn't even looking at the runway at the time because she was trying to find the stupid strip. She oh, just saw no. the, the flames and in the aftermath. Well, because... Oh, no. And no one knew it was a collision at first. Right. Well, because she gave U.S. Air clearance to land. And completely forgot that And completely forgot. Oh, man. I'm guessing a lot of this alleviated when they had radar put in. They had radar. So let's get into it. Yeah. So now you might ask why the local controller, too, didn't use the ground radar. (laughs) The long and the short of it was it wasn't in service. It had been in and out of service for a while, and this was very irritating to air traffic control management. In fact, four days before the accident, they had asked the FAA to treat the ground radar situation with the highest priority, either to fix it or replace it. They were actually supposed to have gotten a new one in 1988, but it kept getting pushed back. (sighs) You mad, bro? Dude, like, why? Oh, just wait. It... That's an important part of ground equipment. (laughs) So investigators couldn't determine if the use of ground radar would have prevented this accident, but... I mean, it couldn't have hurt, right? Yeah. I mean, there's more than one ATC person looking at the radar. I mean, I know I realized that at this point, there's multiple different controllers with multiple different flights, but... Even having, I don't know, to me, having it probably would have made a difference, but yeah, we wouldn't know because she was also off looking for the strip that magically just never got to her. Yeah. Yeah. So, so more about the strip situation. Um, the situation of the missing progress strip was determined to have been a process that process that should have been handled by the ground controller and should not have diverted the attention of the local controller. So it shouldn't have been her problem, basically. Yeah. Right. So the ground controller should have gotten her that strip, basically. And they didn't. Yeah. So that's the ground controller's fault. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Investigators also took a brief look at the situation from U.S. Air 1493's point of view. Shouldn't they have seen the Metroliner on the runway? You would think. Well, it was dark, right? I mean, yeah, but and you're preoccupied. The planes have lights, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, so let's talk about when you're those looking lights. out the cockpit. I, I feel like you know you're you're focusing on landing and stuff. I don't think you'd think that there would be a plane in the middle of the runway. No, but there's still that responsibility as a pilot where you have to inspect the runway and make mm-hmm. sure there's nothing in your way. Okay, so explain. So the lights that are on a metro liner to be seen are the navigation lights on each wing. Red and green lights on either wing. An anti-collision light on the tail. And strobes on the tail and wings. Per SkyWest procedures, the strobes are not to be turned on until they are given clearance to take off. So only the red and green navigation lights were on as well as the red anti-collision light on the tail. So they didn't have any flashing anything except for the beacon. And that rotates, so just kind of... It's like... Like from a distance, a beacon. So there wasn't enough light. Well, so they actually got in a helicopter and decided to fly in the 737's approach with a metro liner on the runway, same time of night. And they discovered that they could not see the anti-collision light because it was in line with the center line lights. Mm -hmm. Oh, and those are red, right? No, they're white, but they're bright. They're really bright. (laughs) Brighter than red. I don't know. I'm trying to think of DIA, but we don't see the... 
No, you don't see the them lights from when you're where you are. in the. You see them on the side though. The sides they have red yeah, lights. Yeah, they have that down the middle. And too. then the red and green lights just weren't bright enough. Just so they just couldn't time. see them. You just couldn't see it. It was it was too dark and there wasn't enough light. Correct. Now, this event was considered to be a runway incursion or an event where an inappropriate object is on the runway that is going to be used for takeoff or landing. And this was not the first time that a runway incursion had happened at LAX. In fact, there was a near collision seven months prior to this accident where a DC-10 landed by flying over an Airbus that was on the runway already. <gasps> <gasps> I okay. Those pilots must have been wearing brown pants or something. That would scare the living so much out of me. Oh no! <laughs> uh, in fact, LAX was number one for runway incursions at this time, and this is what investigators turned their attention to because it was a problem. They found several reasons for the elevated number of incursions. For one, air traffic controllers were understaffed, which we've talked about in the past. Is terrible? A uh, bad idea? Like, don't do that. Next, the view of the northern runways, so runways 2, 4, left, and right, were blocked at night by a light pole that was lighting up the ramp. So the glare from the light meant you couldn't see the runways, which is why she didn't see the Metroliner on the runway. Or so it was said in the Air Disasters episode, though the report says it shouldn't have blocked her vision. Whatever, we'll leave that out. Wait, 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 but, but, isn't that like a big deal? Like that's the point of them being in the tower, right? So they can see the runways? Yes. And they don't have ground radar working, right? So, like, yes. that's the only thing they can use. Yeah. Yes. So that's, like, a problem. Yes. Like, a big problem. <laughs> yes, Dude. I have more on this later. Yes. Dude. So, <laughs> so investigators say that doesn't account for this incident. But it accounts for a lot. I mean, if they had that many runway incursions, right? Or issues with the, with the almost collision type thing? Like, something's wrong. Like, you need to figure that out. <laughs> Do you have the number? Did you say how many? Um, no. I have the one from when things get worse. Okay. It was a lot. It's a lot. I'll, I'll take your word for it. It sounds like it would be a lot. They were in the double digits per year. <gasps> yeah. That's horrifying. Especially when you're in charge of, like, passenger safety, right? At that yeah. point, because you're the one getting people in and out, right? Mm-hmm. So, we'll go more into what happened there after we go through findings and probable cause, because it's came from the recommendations, changes were made, and then more stuff happened, so let's move on. Great. Break it a break. Break it a yep. break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we're back. Time for findings. The NTSB. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Found that the flight crews of both airplanes were properly trained and qualified for the flights, except for the self-medication practices of two of the pilots. Wait, I read about one of them. There were two of them? There were two of them. Ah, okay. Wait, self-medication practices? Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Great. Because there's another point on that. The captain of the U.S. Air Flight had a prescription medication that he was taking that the was not on his medical and nobody was aware of. Oh, um, you're supposed to tell them that, right? In theory, it's supposed to be, yes, qualified and all that. That was Aaron drinking his water. Yeah. <laughs> he took a phenobarbital. Does mm -hmm. it explain anything about it? Prescribed for treatment of a gastrointestinal disorder. No. 
They were discovered in his flight bag. So it probably wouldn't have impeded his ability to fly, right? Let me get the other person. And he'd been using well, them for years. Well, unless it was a side effect. Yeah. You should still say that on your medical, you should still have it on there, but... Yes. The second person was taking an over-counter, the over-the-counter medication, and it was the first officer in the Metroliner. And neither one of them were found to be a contributing factor. But it... it probably wasn't good that yeah but they they felt that it was worthy bringing up mostly because they wanted people to be aware and we'll get into this in the recommendations but they wanted pilots to be aware it's like don't self-medicate unless it's approved and let us know the flight attendants on us air 1493 were properly trained and qualified but the two flight attendants at the rear of the plane initiated emergency procedures after initial impact but before the airplane had come to a stop oh that's not that's a boo-boo which was contrary to their training yeah you should wait for it to, like, stop first. The airplane was still sliding, and mind you, it hit a building while they were up. Yeah, that's dangerous. Ow. Yeah. They were the ones that were severely injured, I believe. Yeah, uh, that would make sense. You would get thrown forward from, you know, inertia. <laughs> yes. They found that air traffic and traffic control workload at LAX at the time was moderate at the time of the accident. So the workload and the amount of traffic in the area was in the moderate range. They were busy. They found that weather was not a factor. Wow. What? I know. They found that the abilities of the LAX air traffic control tower personnel to distinguish aircraft on the runways and other airport traffic movement areas, including the accident site, was complicated by some of the Terminal 2 apron lights, which produced glare. So that's, again, that's the glare, the light glare that we were talking about, produced a glare on the, the windows of the air traffic control tower, and they couldn't see very well. They said it was complicated, but that's all. They found that operating procedures at the LAX tower did not provide redundancy comparable to the FAA's national operation position standards, which require that flight progress strips used to monitor the progress of flights between controller positions be processed through the ground control position. Can you talk to that anymore, or do you understand that? Basically, the redundancy well, of we, passing the flight strip through the, it, yeah. the ground position. Yeah. To check it. They found that the FAA evaluations did not identify that essential redundancy was absent at the LAX control tower. So that one sounds confusing, but basically the FAA evaluations didn't notice, take note, that that uh, redundancy wasn't happening through the ground position. And they found that this lack of redundancy contributed to and compounded the errors by the local controller. They found that the local controller forgot that she had placed SkyWest 5569 into position for takeoff on runway 24 left at the intersection of, of taxiway 45 because of her preoccupation with another airplane. Or airplanes, yes, as it Yes, airplanes. Were. There was quite a few. They found that the local controller's incorrect perception of the traffic situation went undetected because she had an apparent match between her view of the traffic situation on the airport and the flight progress strip at her operating position. So in other words, she knew of three airplanes, and she had... Three airplanes. Right. But there was a fourth one suddenly in the situation. And there was no strip. And there was no strip. They found that a flight progress strip for Wings West 5072 was earlier misplaced by the clearance delivery controller. If local procedures had required that strip be processed through the ground control position, misplacement would have been detected and corrected. Because this strip was not present at the local controller's operating position, she misidentified an airplane and issued a landing clearance that led to the runway collision. They found that the current communication process for pilots and controllers regarding intersection takeoffs do not require that a specific point of departure be identified. I'm sure you'll talk to that a bit, but 
we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast. Midfield takeoffs in any place other than the end of the runway is just a dangerous situation, generally. Yeah. They found that the technical appraisal program for air traffic control is not being fully utilized because of a lack of understanding by supervisors and the unavailability of appraisal histories. It was a little confusing, but basically they, the program wasn't using all of its resources to know what problems they have, essentially. They found that the local controller did not have the airport surface detection equipment radar available to assist her. However, under the circumstances and procedures in effect, or pro- this probably would not have prevented the accident. It's interesting that in the findings they would say they believe it probably wouldn't have prevented it, but I would think it's hard to say. They found that the aircraft external lights required for certification are intended primarily for in-flight conspicuity rather than the conspicuity at an, an, on an airport surface, and consequently the external lights of SkyWest 5569 tended to be indistinguishable from the runway light when viewed from the cockpit of US Air 1493. So, so they, they couldn't see it. That whole thing about they just didn't see them. They found that the post-mortem presence of medication in the captain for US Air 1493 and the first officer of SkyWest 5569 did not contribute to the accident, like we talked about. However, it indicates a less-than-complete appreciation of the potential dangers that the unauthorized use of such medication may pose. You need to let them know you're taking medications. Yes. They found that the emergency response of the L.A. Department of Airports for this accident was timely and effective. So emergency response was good. They found that the exit row briefing provided by U.S. Air increased the preparedness of passengers for the evacuation. However, the delay in opening the right overwing exit the partially blocked exit opening, and other reaction to the stress-caused delays in the egress of some passengers. So, let's talk about this a little bit, because we didn't talk about this before, but um, several passengers perished, quite a few actually, in the 737 perished from smoke inhalation, and that was because there was a delay in opening the right side wing overwing exit doors, and the left side, on the 737, the way they had it then, you were supposed to detach the door and Curl it out. Like you do on a lot of Airbus. Yes. And in this case, somebody didn't do that. What they did was detach it and leave it in front of the opening. And so people were struggling to get out there. The other door wasn't open yet. So a lot of people started to collapse from the smoke inhalation. Now, you would think, okay, but didn't they have enough time to figure that situation out? Well, here's what they say about that. They found that the fire in the cabin of US Air 1493 was accelerated by the release of the oxygen from the flight crew's oxygen system that was damaged in the initial collision sequence on the runway. This acceleration of the flames significantly reduced the time available for a successful emergency evacuation. So essentially, yeah, the OT system ruptured, which caused bigger flames, bigger boom, um, and that caused a lot more smoke and fire in the cabin, and that, that made it very difficult for those passengers to have the time to get out. And here's where we start our TED Talk again about reading the safety information card. Yep. Because I guarantee you there was something in the card that said you're supposed to throw the thing out the window. Yep. And not keep it in front of the exit. And this is one of those things you really want to pay attention to because it is different plane to plane. It is. So that's why we always say, even if you've been on a billion flights, always look at the safety information card, even if you're not even the one on the exit row. Because every plane is a little different. And you want to make sure, like, sometimes there's not anybody in the exit row, right? So you need to make sure that if you're sitting close to it or even if the people in that exit row are incapacitated in some way... 
or um, the flight crews incapacitated because usually they'd be the ones who would facilitate that kind of thing. But and always, just always read the safety information card. And if you're not at an exit row, you may actually still have responsibilities, believe it or not. And it's not just like the mask or the the life vest or that kind of stuff. It would actually be sometimes the rafts. Yeah, that are in the overhead bins. There are some that are in overhead bins, some that are in the ceiling, that kind of stuff. And if you ended up in a water situation, you might actually have responsibilities to get those out too. Or figure out how to use the slides as flotation devices or that rafts. That kind of thing, yep. You need to make sure you know where how to get the knife that is in the slide to like cut the slide loose. Or you're stuck to a sinking plane. Yep. So, moral of the story, read the safety information card. Yep. And finally, they found that many of the deceased passengers on U.S. Air 1493 were found near the overwing exit. They did not proceed to another available exit in the rear of the airplane, perhaps because of smoke and the limited visibility, and they were overcome when the cabin fire intensified. Oh, sad. Yes. Uh, in the Air Disasters episode, they actually talked about, they had an interview with uh, a passenger that did survive, and he actually went to another exit and managed to get it open, even though there were flames, and he jumped through the flames, but but he actually probably saved himself because he realized that there were so many passengers stuck in the middle, and he they weren't getting anywhere, so he was like, there's got to be another way. Which, by the way, stay calm if there's an emergency. Don't push people. That's how mass casualties actually end up happening. People get trampled, people get stuck. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're calm and you're safe and you're listening to the flight crew. It should be the flight crew. But don't just push your way toward an exit. Yep. Uh, make sure that you're not being that guy. You know what I mean? Yep. I, and you're probably, like, it's going to be a little panic-inducing, of course, because, you know, you're in an accident. You don't really know. You might be in shock. You don't really know what's happening. Yeah. And that's understandable, but... To get everybody off the plane safely, or as many people as possible, yep. you need to stay calm and make sure you don't take anything off with you, you get to an exit, and you do what the flight crew tells you to. Right. Well, and in this case, the uh, the captain actually perished, and if you saw the accident, you would know why. Um, and the first officer actually survived and was able to give testimony to the crash. However, I believe he was pretty severely injured in the accident. The cabin crew did manage to actually do a pretty decent job of helping, though, get people out, even though they were all injured. All right. Probable cause, as it always is verbatim from the report, the National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident was the failure of the Los Angeles Air Traffic Control Facility Management to implement procedures that provide, provided redundancy comparable to the requirements contained in the National Operational Position Standards and the failure of the FAA Air Traffic Service to provide adequate policy direction and oversight to its air traffic control facility managers. These failures created an environment in the Los Angeles Air Traffic Control Tower that ultimately led to the failure of the Local Controller 2, or LC2, to maintain an awareness of the traffic situation, culminating in the inappropriate clearances and the subsequent collision of the U.S. Air and SkyWest aircraft. 
Contributing to the cause of the accident was the failure of the FAA to provide effective quality assurance of the ATC system. You done good. Right? I didn't like You didn't stumble. stumble. <laughs> yeah, so that definitely that definitely covers it well. Um they definitely lean heavily on the air traffic control system and that is definitely the problem. And they explained it a little bit to the investigators when we saw the episode that it is interesting because they don't blame speci- that like of course, there's that want to pin it on one person, but that one person isn't necessarily the problem. She was trying to do her job. It, it's but, the yeah, system it's the, that she's yeah. working it's, in. She's yeah. the human factor in the poor system that was designed around her. And she was only using what she had available to her, but those problems were all human factor problems. And, and I don't know if you guys have talked about this before, but the the 5M model, where it's basically... Everything re- revolves about, uh, around management, mm-hmm. whether it be the management corporation or, you know, management of how things are done. Mm-hmm. But typically speaking, the management of, you know, the control tower mm-hmm. is ultimately what's in charge here. Yeah. Because if you have bad management, you have bad controllers. Right. It's the same. It's the same anywhere. Yeah. Yep. If you yeah. have bad leadership and bad management, you're going to have bad employees. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's mainly that model, the 5M model. And, you know, everybody can, like, look it up. But, yeah, that it basically says, here are these other factors that could contribute to any crash. And there's four of them. And then there's just a giant bubble all around all of them that says management. So, yep. Well, and Makes meaning, sense. my point also meaning, not to say she was a bad employee. She did the best with what she had. Yeah. And she was trying to keep everything in her ability. You know, she had three airplanes and a missing strip, right? Yep. So she went to go look for the strip because she had another airplane. But, I mean, trying – even going through it, I was confused. Like, I would yes. have been complete – and they, she couldn't see – the radar was out. She couldn't see um, well onto the runway. So it's very easy to see how this happened. And well, if they had a better I, management system. To, I'm still, still trying to wrap around my head of how it was delivery that didn't give her the strip, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that of why that's that's a standard like practice. Like yeah. that that's just here you, a, here, here you go. This is what they're doing. I'm handing them off to you right now. Yeah. So <laughs> so there's a you know handoffs in ATC are fun because you get the a short brief description of what that flight's doing. So when they get that handoff, you know, first is strip, yep. and then it says they're going here, here, and here. This is their departure. This is their departure route real quick. Yeah. Done and done. It d- takes like two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that this wasn't done at all. Right. It's just that that's how. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which I get. and But you think about it too is like – she wasn't the only human factor in all this. I mean, there was, oh, of no. course, there was, of course, the the strip that didn't get handed to her. That was a human factor, and then the the aircraft that switched frequencies inadvertently, that was another human factor. Yep. So it's three mm-hmm. human factors that all played into this accident yep. in reality. After this accident, Robin Washer, the local controller too, did quit. Yep. And never returned to air traffic control. Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't blame her. Yeah, yeah, I mean it is horrifying, and I, I I feel bad for her too. And I think the I think the investigators did too because they did interview her and stuff. And it's like, I'm sure it was horribly traumatizing, and I'm sure it was like, you know, she felt super at fault. And the report has to lean a little bit in that direction more to make a point that air traffic control at LAX has a problem. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and we've talked about it before. ATC is a high-stress job. You're yeah. in charge of a lot of people's lives in ATC. So having something happen and have it inadvertently be your fault right. is a lot. It That's is. a lot. That is. So, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that she was like, yeah, nope, can't do this anymore. Bye. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just glad. I'm honestly glad she's just not dead. Like yeah. Yes. Always, yeah. Because that air traffic controllers where, have I a pretty high I thought that was where this rate. was going. I'm glad well, it wasn't. Well, not not even that, but like the one controller in Europe where yeah, yeah, yeah. He, we'll talk about that one sometime. That, one, that yeah. one's fun. That's a yeah. fun one. That one's on our list. That one is slightly true crimey. Yes. Yeah. It is. it is. Yep. Okay. So now for some recommendations, and this is where we start to get really deep, really heavy. We'll run through the recommendations first, and then we'll talk about what really changed. The recommendations are a bit lengthy. They're just long-winded, that's all. The NTSB recommended modifying air traffic control procedures at LAX to segregate arrivals and departures to specific runways, provide redundancies as intended in the National Operations Position Standards in the control tower. So... That's what I talked about earlier. Primarily, having, yes. Having what, one runway for arrivals and one runway for departures. And they do that. And not only do they do that... But at LAX now, they actually usually have one controller per runway. So one controller handling arrivals and yeah. one controller handling the departures. So separate. local controller 2 was handling two runways. She was doing 2-4 left and 2-4 right. Correct. That's, that's a lot. That's too much. Especially if you're doing both arrivals and departures on both runways. That's a lot. At that airport where it was so busy? Yeah. There's a lot of airports where that's still commonplace, only because it's not as busy. Well, smaller airports I get. LAX, not a small airport. Yeah. Very busy. DIA kind of does it. Yeah. I'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They recommended undertaking a thorough risk-based evaluation of air traffic control procedures at LAX. Evaluate whether changes are required and implement necessary changes. The evaluation should consider runway and intersection takeoffs, position, and hold short clearances, displaced runway thresholds, hazard associated with runway crossing traffic, uh, local assistant controllers, and airport surface detection equipment use and maintenance. So there's a lot of things in there, but they're saying that the whole risk assessment at at LAX needs to be looked at and fixed. Changed, yeah. Completely. And they essentially did fix all of these things. Again, we'll get to that in a minute, but this is like, they really wanted to have a hammer down on everything there. They recommended directing the FAA's human factors and air traffic service staff to perform a combined review of the National Operational Position Standards order to determine the adequacy of redundancies and incorporate any resultant recommendations into the national order. So just changing these things nationally to fix this problem. So it doesn't happen somewhere else. Right. They recommended providing air traffic control supervisors with formal training to improve their understanding of the intent, objectives, and administration of the technical appraisal program. They recommended requiring the interim evaluations of controller performance, retain the information for two years, and utilize it in conjunction with other performance appraisals to track the performance and training needs of air traffic controllers. So saying that air traffic controllers specifically, if you notice that one has this kind of problem... To be able to identify that and help train them and get them to that that perfect quote-unquote level. We recommend conducting a one-time examination of airport lighting at all U.S. tower control airports to eliminate or reduce restrictions to visibility from the control tower to the runways and other traffic movement areas. So again, the light that was shining on the tower that prevented her from seeing, just fixing that 
at so not just there, but everywhere. Making sure you can see the runway. Because, yeah. like, that's the point of having a tower, period. Yeah. They recommended redefining airplane certification coverage compliance standards for anti-collision light installations to ensure that the anti-collision lights of an aircraft in position on a runway are clearly visible to the pilot of another aircraft preparing to land or take off on that runway. So making them brighter. Making them brighter, making them different color, whatever it is, making them flashier, something to make them really obvious. They recommended evaluating and implementing as appropriate suitable means for enhancing the visibility of aircraft on airport surfaces during night or periods of reduced visibility. Just figuring out better ways to see airplanes when they're on the ground. They recommended directing the general aviation community and the airlines to take steps to ensure that the pilot training programs, including cockpit resource management training and flight operations procedures, place sufficient emphasis on the need for pilots to maintain vigilance in monitoring air traffic control, radio communication frequencies for potential traffic conflicts with their aircraft, especially on active runways. So this one starts to hit it a little bit at our uh, crew resource management, as well as uh, other training programs, just saying that within the GA community, so general aviation, as well as the airlines, making it commonplace to just be very, very aware. You know, air traffic control is supposed to be looking out for you, but that's not it. Like, you yeah. need to be on the lookout, like, too. not changing your frequency? I mean, yes. Like that one plane? Because that was also a problem, right? Like, she was trying to get a hold of that plane four different times, and it took them that long to figure out. Four different times in 40 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Took them 40 seconds to figure out, oh, we're on the wrong frequency, which to me seems a little weird, right? Because they should have been on that frequency anyway, unless they switched over to a wrong frequency. And I guess we wouldn't know that for sure. But I don't know. Double-checking. It's always, like we said, it's always good to double check then yeah. not be right, you know? Yeah, exactly. All right, let's see here. They recommended incorporating into the Airman's Information Manual language that will alert pilots to the need for vigilance in monitoring air traffic frequencies for traffic conflict situations. So this one kind of builds into that crew resource management, too. It's like telling pilots one pilot should always be paying attention to the other conversations going on on the same frequency to know, to get a picture in your mind of where the other airplanes are. Because they should have, and at this point, I'm surprised there wasn't more emphasis on this too, but both airplanes were probably aware of one another in some sense. However, US Air definitely missed where Sky West was. Mm-hmm. Sky West, however, and they I thought it was really interesting. They showed it in the episode. And I think it's in the report somewhere, but they really don't bring it up that Sky West even called themselves out as being held in position at Taxiway 45 on the runway. But they did it kind of unclear in a sense that it didn't tell them that was like they were like, we're still holding at 45 after she just cleared US Air to land. Well, and that's, I mean, that was my confusion, right? Because I didn't realize that them holding at 45 meant they were on the runway. I thought they were literally Mm -hmm. at a taxiway ready to get on the runway. Which was, originally they were told to hold short, and then they were told to hold and hold, to position and hold. Right. And so that's where they were. And when they heard the tower controller give clearance to US Air to land, they even called out and said, we're still holding in position at 45. But that seemed to be completely glanced over. I would have made a bigger deal about it. Like, yeah. the more I got ignored, I would have been like, hello! We're still on I, the runway. I, I've actually 
like had that scenario happen at, out at uh out at Centennial where yeah. I was like there, there it was a Learjet that mm. was coming in the land and Yikes. I was like I'm still holding in position and the Learjet said got it going around <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep I mean that's good I mean good for you for calling that out yeah hashtag you can always go around you can always go around you can always go around. <laughs> They recommended developing for inclusion in the Airman in Info Manual and Air Traffic Control Handbook specific phraseology to use to be used by pilots when requesting an intersection departure, and specific phraseology to be used by controllers when issuing position and hold clearance for an intersection departure. So she told them to position and hold, but she didn't specifically say out loud position and hold on runway at intersection of Taxiway 45, basically. Yeah, and if she did, it probably could have... It, it would have painted a better picture in her yes. own mind mm -hmm. of where they were. Because it didn't... Because she didn't ever verbally say out loud where they were, I think she never had that picture really in her mind. That's and that's why she on lost track. 2-4 left. Yeah. yeah. That well, it was on 2-4 left at the intersection of 45. But like mm -hmm. I said, I thought they were like not on the runway. So if she had said, hold on runway, ready for takeoff, you know? Mm -hmm. I'd be like, okay, well, they're on the runway. <laughs> Can't let someone land on that runway now. Right. Right. I don't. I don't know if that like ties into like why they like kind of changed it now. Because like I, I noticed that like a lot of controllers mm -hmm. instead of position hold, they'll say line up and wait. Yeah, line and, up and which wait. Which is it's the same instruction. Right. But, but I think that line up and wait now kind of leads into they'll tell you line up and wait. Line up and wait two four left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they'll give yeah, you specifically they'll, they'll still, the runway. They'll still do that. Because them having to say that out loud paints the picture in their mind and yours specifically where you are. Yeah. They recommended prohibiting the use of materials in transport aircraft that do not comply with the fire safety standards. This is a really general statement, but we've also talked about an incident where this happened. <laughs> but with the gist of that oxygen system going, yeah. that was yeah. bad. Yeah. And they needed to figure out how to fix that. So that that doesn't happen again. So it don't go boom. Yep. Or it goes boom slower. Yes. <laughs> and doesn't feed a giant fire. Yes. yes. They recommended issuing an air carrier operations bulletin directing principal operation inspectors to emphasize that during a crash sequence, flight attendants must remain properly restrained and seated in their crew seats until the airplane has come to a complete stop. Shocker. I, I wonder why that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I really... This one... This one really feels like, yeah, you really no, should... Duh. Yeah. yeah. No duh, but I guess it has to be said because they, they got, got up. up. Yeah, <laughs> they got up. It's like the caution: now, coffee is hot thing, you know. Right now, I understand a little bit. Like adrenaline gets going as soon as you felt that impact. You see sparks and flames. You're like, we're in a bad situation. We got to get out right now. And I get they like probably adrenaline kicked in, and they were like, let's get this emergency sequence started. But the airplane wasn't done moving yet, and that the rest of that impact is what hurt them. Yeah, inertia, friends. An object in motion will stay in motion the unless airplane, it's forced to stop. <laughs> right. The airplane had to slow down from more than 100 miles an hour. I have a small tangent going along the lines of don't unbuckle too quickly. We have been on a couple of flights recently, and I would like to yell at everyone who unbuckles themselves before the seatbelt sign <sighs> is turned off. Before you get to the freaking gate. Airplanes. Yeah. I hate to say it, but airplanes, the most common type of accident these days especially in commercial aviation are ground mm -hmm. impacts they literally hit one another yeah so um there's actually a story about this so a guy i know he was flying with i believe it was um frontier somebody like that mm -hmm. 
Anyway, budget airline. That's the gist of it. Sure. Got it. And he was an FO at the time. He, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he lost his job. Excuse me. He lost his job due to this, but in hindsight, it could have been a lot worse. So, plane touched down on runway. Yep. And, you know, they're rolling. Mm-hmm. They're rolling. They're rolling. They're still rolling. Oh. They're still rolling. Great. And, you know, he says, um, you know, Captain gets, uh, you know, uh, ATC says, you know, turn at exit. Well, this exit was, you know, on, was on the other side of the runway. Yep. And, you know, him as the FO, and this was back in the times of, you know, I'm the captain, I'm the big honcho, you sit yeah, yeah. down and you listen to ATC for me. Yeah. And apparently, he didn't understand that the captain had lost situational awareness at this oh, time. Good. So oh, good. So, they no. were rolling and rolling. Passes the exit they're supposed to taxi off of. Uh-oh. And he said, okay, um, yeah, two-thirds of the runway. Captain didn't hear that, disregarded it. Yeah, so he took over the controls at two-thirds down the runway. Mm-hmm. And they were still, like, they hadn't braked at all. So they were just cruising down Holy. the runway. And, yeah, they overran the runway. No one was hurt. But still, like, you, you got to think that if someone had stood up. And they were in the grass, and they they the nose gear collapsed on this plane. Yeah, that's a concussion. Oh, at least, at least, at yeah. least a concussion. Yeah, so, <laughs> the airplane will come to a pretty heavy stop. Yeah, and I, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, even if it seems like the airplane's moving slow or like you're getting close to parking, you'd be surprised. That's exactly when airplanes hit each other because that's when they're closest. Yeah, and when we were pulling into Dallas yesterday, we had stopped ahead of our gate. We were not pulled into our gate. And people were standing up and, like, taking off their seatbelts. I'm like, we ha- we're we not done, yo! Yeah. 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 Well, like, when we got back from Aspen, to be fair, we were delayed an hour, an hour and a half, right? Sure, but... But we landed, and people unbuckled, started standing up. I was like, we are not at the gate yet. There is nothing you can do to get off this plane faster by standing up right now. Yeah. Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's like one of those things, like, I get, it's a long flight. You know, but, uh, also, not from Aspen. but also, <laughs> yeah. well, not from Aspen, but like, but still, yeah, you, you've been sitting down a while and you're just like, I want to move. Like, I need to stretch my it, legs. But and you can like, wait that couple exactly. minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Wait till the captain turns off the seatbelt sign. The seatbelt sign isn't there just to warn you. It's there as like an actual thing. Like, and yeah. it's, it's on as long as the engines are on. They yep. turn it off when they turn off the engines. Yep. Yep. Because so. then the plane can't move. Right. Okay, sorry for my tangent. No, it's a good tangent. Please don't stand up before you're supposed to. Please don't unbuckle before you're supposed to. Okay, back to our regular... <laughs> back to your regularly scheduled program. All right. They recommended establishing a comprehensive educational program to alert pilots to the potential adverse effects on flight crew performance that may arise from the misuse of medications. Again, this didn't play a factor in this accident, but they they wanted to make it known to the pilot community. It's like... Seriously, just don't don't do it. If you're like, at least let us know. <laughs> yeah, if you if you are taking, because you never know the side effects of some of those medications could be drowsiness. Oh yeah, or yeah. almost every medication comes yeah. with either drowsiness, dizziness, or one of those. And those Nausea, are suicidal you know, thoughts. These yeah, days. Or suicidal <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. Do not operate heavy machinery. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, aka forklift. <laughs> yeah. Or aka airplane. <laughs> yeah. An airplane definitely qualifies as heavy machinery. Uh, so getting into that a little bit, j- just so that you guys know that there there is a law around yep. this now that says 
if it says take said medicine like every like eight hours or something, mm -hmm. you can't fly until you're yep. supposed to take two more dosages. So basically uh, saying that if I took an Advil or something right now mm -hmm. for my migraine or whatever, yep. and it says on the bottle, eight hours, take the next one if you're still having this. Right. I can't fly for another 16, 16 hours. hours. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how it should be. And that's basically what they're basing that off of. Well, yep. that way there's no adverse effects and it doesn't affect your ability exactly. to fly. Yeah. So then you're not putting yourself in a dangerous situation and you're not putting your passengers in a and, dangerous situation. And the situation. airlines have definitely got more lenient about this because people were calling them out because they're like, I have a headache and yada yada and all this other stuff. Where like, I have seasonal allergies and there'd be, you know, people rushing and they said, hey, you know, what, when did you take it last? And right. if they said, oh, I just took it like 30 minutes ago, they they would not cancel the flight, but, you know, there would be a, a very delayed flight looking for another pilot. <laughs> yep. Yep. They recommended developing a way to disseminate this information to pilots in the industry. So basically, all of this that came from this accident, they wanted to make literally this report and this information uh, not just publicly available, but it needs to be common knowledge yeah. to the entire community, the entire pilot community and aviation industry. Uh, because this one had some serious implications, obviously, and there was a lot of human factors in this. So how do you fix the human factors? You make the human aware. So in that regard, it's good that the one pilot here already knew about this incident. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's kind of important, right? Yeah. Um, so fun, fun fact, I did, I knew about this accident because it, it, and we'll get, we'll get into this a little bit more, but yeah. this one accident is what caused a lot of the like ATC stuff to like yes, it come did. about. And yeah, we'll get into that later. Yep. <laughs> I've only got one more in the recommendations and then we'll get into it. Woo. They recommended reemphasizing the use of cockpit resource management programs and set a date of these programs to be required at all Air carriers. Crew resource management. Hashtag CRM. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about, this goes back to our very first episode, UA-232, how that really spawned crew resource management as truly a thing. And it still wasn't mandatory by 1991 when this came out. And they're saying, make it mandatory. Yes. Wow. Important. Important, yeah. important, important. Yep. So that's another huge thing. That's This wasn't necessarily the spawning thing from that, but... Another huge recommendation, needless to say. Of course. Uh, 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 crewmate, ah, CRM, let's just call it that because I can't talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, especially in this, this that would have just helped. Like, even like, because, you know, you got to think about it, it doesn't just, CRM is not just cockpit. It's flight attendants, ground control, ATC, yep. everyone involved. And if everyone literally was working together on this instead of, you know, oh, you have this flight. And then it's like, where's my thing at? Like, you just right. told me this flight and I have nothing here. If they did even that a little bit better, that yeah. could have been a saving grace or, yep. you know, you know, different pilots working together and cockpit to cockpit communication of the, hey, yep. I'm lined up at 44. That would have helped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now let's get into a little bit more about like what truly changed in this industry. And we'll start with the two, let's say, smallest ones. That aren't small at all, but they're specific to LAX. Number one, the air traffic control tower was completely torn down and they built a new one. Woo. That was 16 stories taller than the one they had before, Woo. which was already 12 stories tall. <laughs> and was three times larger. It was three times larger, so they could handle a tra one traffic controller per arrival and one air traffic controller per takeoff and one air traffic controller per runway. They also replaced the ground radar. 
I yep. mean, yeah, that in general probably a good idea. Yep. And by raising that air traffic control tower, they eliminated that glare problem from the lights. from the light. Yeah, because yep. they're probably above that light now. Oh, they're way above that now. <laughs> they're sixteen stories above that yeah. now. So now they can actually have a good vantage point. So yeah, so they did that, and then another big change that was implemented at LAX and has been updated since, and they are now implementing at a lot of other airports, is the uh, runway status lighting. So this in specific is a type of lighting that actually is automated, yeah, and it tracks the airplanes per the ground radar and per actual radar facilities. It tracks the airplane on the ground, and it actually changes the colors of lights at hold short points, as well as on the ends of, on the threshold ends of the runways, for, it, it changes them to tell the pilots, hey, you should have conflicting traffic if you go any further. So if you were to take off, if you were to land, or if you were to go beyond the hold short point, there is conflicting traffic on your runway. It's basically, literally lights up the center line red. Yeah. And that should, in most cases, red usually means dead. Yep. So I, I saw an article where they wanted to change it to, instead of uh, turning the lights red, mm-hmm. that they use the X on yeah. the, the, at the ends of the runway, and those will light up. And that would yeah. be interesting. That would be interesting, because you would think, oh, runway's closed. Uh, I can yeah. see how that would cause a lot of conflict as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the big X is a big is a big no-no in aviation. Yeah. And most pilots know what the big X is. It means the runway's closed. And you that cannot is, land here. Yeah, it's usually a big flashing yellow X. <laughs> yeah. Or white. Or white. It's, Either way, it's, it's really big obvious. flashing X. If you so we've gone plane spotting multiple times before, and there've been times where we've been out by DIA, and there's an X on a runway, and you're like, "Oh look, that runway's closed." Yeah, they're <laughs> usually doing maintenance. You can literally or... see it from miles and miles away. It's that big. There That's was the one time, uh, I can't remember why it was, but a United plane had an incident on one of the runways at DIA. The gear collapsed. Gear collapsed. Yeah. And the plane was still just chilling on the runway for a couple days. And so we went plane spotting like right after it happened, like mm-hmm. the next day. And the big X was on the There's runway. There's the big giant X. But and the plane was still there. <laughs> going back to the runway <laughs> status lights, I want to read off the list of airports these are at. And maybe one of you can identify why they would be. Boston Logan, Dallas-Fort Worth, San Diego, Orlando, Phoenix, George Bush Intercontinental, a.k.a. Houston. Baltimore, Las Vegas, Charlotte Douglas, LAX, SeaTac, O'Hare, Dulles, LaGuardia, JFK, Minneapolis, Newark, Detroit, Fort Lauderdale, and San Francisco. What do all of these airports have in common? They're Quans, big Bravo. traffic airpo- airports. And Bravo? He just said space? it. Yeah. Bravo? They're Bravo. So they're, they're class Bravo. But actually, there's another thing these all have in common, too. Their runways cross. So yeah. either their oh. runways cross, either their runways cross, or they have parallels that you have to cross to get to or from. Yeah. And DIA doesn't actually have this no. because we have enough taxiways. So that, much room. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have the space, but we have taxiways that literally go around the ends of most yep. of the other ones. There's no reason then, for an airplane to cross a runway in Denver. Yeah. And it's also nice because, like, you you have you, the segments that go out to the other runways. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, if you wanted to slightly amend your flight pass while you're taxiing, yeah. not a good idea, by the way. No. But if you wanted to, you could just take the next runway because those are also right there. Yeah. Like, you, you can taxi and you're like, oh, I'm on my way to runway. And you could advise tower and say, hey, can we take this runway and right. wait for permission, you know? Yeah. And that's really what that would come down to is exactly who is doing what. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. 
So the, I mean, but the runway status lights, yeah, they're implemented. All the airports they're implemented at are runways where you have to cross a yeah. runway to get to or from it. So, i.e., San Francisco, they they have their two eight runways, which are the most active runways for freaking landings that are so close together, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And they get heavy traffic all the time. They land on two eight right, but all of the terminals and concourses are all on the left side of two eight left. So, so you that have to means cross two eight left. So that means once they've landed on two eight right, they have to cross two eight left. So having that status there is also really important. I, uh, from a safety standpoint, mm-hmm. I would switch that and have landings on yes, two eight, on two eight left. left, and then right. takeoffs on two eight right. The problem is, is that L, is that at San Francisco they typically land on both. Yeah, they'll yeah. do the parallels, that and then they'll sense. take off on the one nines instead. Oh. I mean, it's better to do it that way than have or runway one a or runway doing is. both. Yeah. You know, that's I think another big issue with this accident was you're doing both takeoff and landing at a very very busy airport. Yeah, that I mean, so like let's say as we said before, like Centennial, mm-hmm. it's a busy airport, but there, it's general aviation mostly, mm-hmm. and uh, so landing and and taking off on the same runway is not that big of a deal. So, but even at Centennial, I can tell you, even at Centennial, they'll, on a really, really busy day, they'll actually oh. even have one controller per runway, mm-hmm. and they'll handle the 1-7 right or 3-5 left as pattern traffic only, Yep. yep. and then 1-7 left, 3-5 right as and your your main departure runway. Right. I, I really like how they do it there, too, because not only will Centennial, not only will they... Uh, keep the pattern traffic on one runway and then yeah. all the arrivals and departures on the other runway. Right. They'll split the frequencies. Yeah. So yeah, literally each runway has its own frequency. Yeah. And if if you're on one frequency and you're on a different runway, you yeah. can there's obvious problems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well and like even a smaller airport like Aspen, Aspen has one runway. Yep. Um so you land and take off on the same runway. But it's fine because there's not so much incoming and outgoing traffic that you can't figure out, you know, what's going on, unlike well, at a big international airport. <laughs> and they've figured out ways to get around the problems that they have, say, at Aspen. Yeah. Aspen's a really unique case because it's a one-way-in, one-way-out airport. It is. And along with that, like, you have to get, a, like, a special endorsement to fly in yeah. Aspen. Yeah, so. you do. <laughs> if you have a special endorsement to fly there, you usually have to have uh, an IFR flight mm-hmm. plan to fly in and out of there. And uh, they have specific procedures for the departures to avoid the incoming traffic because the incoming traffic's typically going to approach in a straight line much further out. So there's that. And then the airport has a, a curfew. So oh, Aspen yeah. only mm-hmm. operates during certain hours of the day. That's fine. The other fix that went into oh. this that was really brief. Um, you're required to turn on all of your lights before getting onto a runway. Yep. Yeah. Huge. That is huge. Yeah, so you can see a plane on the runway. <laughs> yeah. Yep. If all there of... is a plane on the runway. Well, if they had had the strobes on the Metroliner, they might have they they probably see... would have seen them. Oh, yeah. Because sure. the strobes so... are usually bright enough to see. Yeah. Before the runway warning lights were put in and all of the other changes were made, LAX, actually, you would think they would get better at runway incursions. They got worse. It got so much worse that in 2007, they had 21 runway incursions, and that's more than one a month. Yep. So that was when they put in that new runway lighting system, because even like more than 10 years after this accident, they were still having problems. That's yep. fine. So. I mean, I hate LAX, so. It is, okay. it is getting to be a better airport. Okay. That's all I have for this. Everything else is all you. So, 
what you were saying earlier about landing and taking off on different runways and right. stuff. DIA does that, but they also don't. Well, to <laughs> yeah. be fair, DIA uh, has like 15 runways. Well, six. Six, <laughs> yes. But I was but, exaggerating. Okay, yeah. so what they'll do is for the odd traffic, they'll use the 27 and 26 runway. That's the north and south runway. They'll use those for, you know, the traffic that's, you know, kind of like flying around like the shorter trips. Right. And they're not necessarily using a departure pattern or arrival pattern. So what they do is they take the four quote-unquote parallels because two of them are parallels and the other one are, are also two parallels, but they're on different headings. Right. Anyway, they'll take three, four, and three, five, and they'll go arrival on one, departure on another, arrival on the uh, – just mirroring that on the mm-hmm. other side. So then they'll go departure on one and then arrival on the other, and this yep. is from left to right. However – they will land three planes on all three runways. Yep. Because the two parallels are further enough to where they can do a staggered approach. Yep. And then when you cross the airport, since the terminal's in the, basically the middle, they'll they'll do parallel approaches mm-hmm. on the other two runways. Well, that's fine. It's just making sure you're not doing it at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, no I understand what you mean. But yeah, it's just that's weird because, like I said, they do, but they yes. don't <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, to be fair, DIA is not as big of an international airport it's as, not as busy. It's not LAX. as busy. Yeah, because we're not we're not on a coast, right? So we don't yeah. have a bunch of we have international traffic that comes in, but not a lot like from the the yeah. coasts and stuff. The majority of ours so, are domestic traffic, but the thing is, yeah. is that we have six runways to play with. Mm-hmm. And they only have four, and they're really busy. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah, because like I said, they, they take those north and south runways, and those are like, you know, those are the off flights. Those are, right. Yeah. And then you start talking about the bigger problem at LAX is that you have to cross one of the runways, typically, yeah. whether you're taking off or landing. And at, D- at DIA, at, out at Denver, we just don't. You don't. Yeah. yeah. There's no need to. They're spaced out and there's plenty of taxi room because you know it's in the middle of the planes <laughs> yeah. yeah there's so. literally nothing out there yeah uh, another thing that i want to touch on was so when us atc people we were going through our stuff this yep. accident was accident number one when they said this is what not to do and then they said okay now let's look at lax in a whole don't be like LA. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's and that's, that's that was that was day one. That was day one. They said, "Don't be like LAX." This it's, is why. Here's an accident. True. That air- <laughs> someday that airport's gonna have to go. It's, yeah, they're gonna have to build something else, something somewhere else. Some. It it is a problem. It, it is, and but the problem is, is they don't I have a lot of space. They don't out there. When when I had originally thought it was. Like, the controller's, like, main fault. And, it, and it, in a way, it kind of was, but at the same time... In a way. It, systems. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I said that she didn't refer to the basics. It's, like, day, another day one acronym. And basically, it's literally basics. It says, uh, be sure the runway's open. That's step one. Yep. <laughs> uh, aircraft position verified. That's step two. Yep. And scan the runway step three. Yep. So I can see how... All of those things just couldn't, either didn't or couldn't happen. <laughs> yep. Well, and she had, you know, four different flights 
Four different flights. One of them was coming in. Three. One of them was crossing. Two of them were going out. She. Two, all three of them are Metroliners. <laughs> three of them are Metroliners. She can't find a strip for one of them, and she's trying to figure all this out on top of the fact that, you know, she can't see the runway very well, right? So all and, of that together. Yeah. And that was just one of her runways. Right. Yeah. She was also in charge of the other runway yeah. right next to it. So... When you take into consideration the load she had, doesn't surprise me that she couldn't do the basics. You know what I mean? Yeah. You need to be able to give your people the ability to do their job properly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think think they've tried with, you know, the systems that they put in there. Yeah. But, you know, it it got worse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It did. But, I I mean, things are getting better at LAX and around the world. Yeah. Generally, we figured out ways to fix the problems at most major airports. Yeah. LAX is really, it's got its own unique problems that most airports just don't have. It's the same with, like, Denver. Like, Denver has its, or had, I should say, had its own unique problems. Yes. uh, Fun fact, the aviation branch of CDOT is what helped out with most of those problems, which is very, like, intriguing and, like, their process and stuff. Yeah, and they're (laughs) actually brilliant. Yeah, they really are. (laughs) They're, they're, They're a brilliant organization. One... One problem that I like really liked that they fixed was the um, uh, the radar because we mm-hmm. would lose radar con- like before they were like we got advanced radar. Center was like basically everything west of the Rockies we kind of blind on. So CDOT said, "Oh, well, we've got snowmobiles and trucks, so they installed a bunch of radar dishes on like Pikes Peak and stuff like that." Yep. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. Yeah, so that you know you can see because mm-hmm. that's important. Flights yeah. come in from out there and flights go out from that direction yeah. you know so yep. you need to be able to see stuff cdot's got you covered <laughs> yeah they do they do a great job that said there are still occasions where weird things happen and namely it's usually at this point it's less air traffic control and it's more usually the airplane <laughs> these days uh just a couple of years ago there was a really crazy act a really crazy incident that happened that kind of took the aviation world by surprise and that was San Francisco's a really busy airport no doubt but they were operating at night and an Air Canada uh, Airbus was inbound and they'd been cleared to land they got down like right to below their minimums I think they were like 150 feet something like that and it was at that moment that the first officer who I think was pilot flying realized that he was approaching over the taxiway instead of the runway, and the taxiway was completely covered in airplanes. <gasps> and he got within, like, 10 feet of impacting an airplane. And there's actually uh, sur- there's surveillance camera footage of it. We'll pull it up uh, and watch it after we're done recording here. But it is, if you, you go look it up, because it's crazy. And these kinds of things, this is more of a, a loss of situational awareness. This is that human factor part, but... Uh, situational awareness is another big thing that kind of came from this. And that's why they're still talking about it today. It's like, how how can you fix all the human error problems? Well, obviously, there's always going to be the human factor, so you can't get rid of all of them. But they're trying to figure out what the best way to work around them yeah. these days. And so I think, you know, this this kind of, this incident was really strange in that he was truly approaching over a taxiway that he really shouldn't have been. And he should have noticed the runway. Usually they're, I mean, they're obvious, but he must, he mistook all the, the lights from the airplanes as the center line, the center line and the edge lighting for 
the runway. Like, in a way that makes sense. Like, yeah. <laughs> when you're at night, and, yeah. and you can talk about it, and we can talk about how those things should look totally different, but when you're flying at night, I mean, it is, there, and especially when you're f- traveling in an airplane really fast, really high, mm-hmm. their nose is slightly high, so they can't quite tell what's below them. Yeah. That's when it's really, really dangerous, and it is hard to perceive these things sometimes. I don't, I don't blame them but they definitely got reprimanded and there was definitely some retraining and stuff that came out of this and a lot of rework that had to be done they had to figure out why that being said we're going to do our post episode now because this is conversation for post episode well sort of thanks again aaron for being on again of course being our expert atc expert (laughs) and this was i don't know the flight (laughs) sky west 5569 and u.s air 1493 okay thank you (laughs) Um, thanks again to everyone who's a new patron and everyone who's recommending episodes and all that stuff. We appreciate it. Thanks to Mike for recommending this episode. Specifically, this was the Los Angeles runway disaster. Yes. Remember, stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, don't be dumb. (laughs) And we will catch you next week. Keep Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.